this is all of this is my calling. You know, it's not something I have to like, but it's all of it is my calling because in healing of this, I am now doing this work in helping other people heal. That was Shanda Catrice, and this is episode 30 of the Soul of Sensitivity podcast. I'm your host, Anna Holden. I'm a professional intuitive and energy healer. I help highly sensitive people dig into the shadows of their soul to access their gifts, reclaim their purpose, and get intimate with their ultimate truth. This is season two, and in it, we're exploring healers, specifically how they got here, how they do their healing magic, and the beliefs they have that guide them forward. We're also taking a peek at the specific practices they have in place to keep themselves healthy. Let's face it, being a badass in a sensitive body is no joke, and the healers I interview share their strategies for staying healthy while healing the world. This is the soul of sensitivity. Hi there, friends. Welcome back. It's Anna. And today I've got a new conversation with Shanda Catrice. I'm really excited to share this conversation because we're talking about relationship styles and attachment styles and how our attachment styles affect every relationship in our life. And if there is one common theme in all of the client work I do, it's that we are concerned about how we relate to others. And I find, you know, this, this spiritual work really fascinating in its paradox in that when we do kind of personal growth or spiritual work, we're kind of centered on us, right, in that moment, right? We're centered on, you know, what can I take responsibility for? What is mine to work on? How can I experience more peace and more happiness? And... And, and that's great. And usually, you know, we're doing that so that we can interact better in the world, right? We don't live in isolation. We have the, this, this paradox where, you know, our world can be kind of us centric, right? We're the only ones that we have full responsibility for. We, we are the only ones that we can actually affect, right? We can only create change for us. And we are most happy, really, and and wired to be interacting with others. So I find the conversation that I had with Shanda, I think, to be really kind of enlightening to help us understand a bit more uh, about, you know, why we might have certain patterns in relationships. So that's coming up in just a moment here. In personal news... I talked about this last last episode, but man, it's fall, isn't it? I mean, technically, we, I think the, well, I'm recording this on September 20th. It's a Thursday. The equinox is coming up on Saturday. So by the time this is published on Monday, it will be officially, it'll officially be autumn. Um, but I have really been feeling the fall coming on and, and, and if you haven't listened to last week's ep- episode, 
you might listening to that might make what I'm going to say a little bit more clear, but I can feel these autumn energies coming in. I can feel the kind of the darkness coming, right? And and the the t- the time that uh, at least for me, I definitely feel that call to go inward and to reassess and to hibernate a little bit. And he, fall is a time where I see a lot of us fight and in the past and, and still to some degree, um, I've had a little bit of a fight with this energy because we as humans are part of the natural world, yet we often believe that natural principles don't apply to us. And here's the example that I'll give. Nothing in nature blooms all the time, right? In Even in areas of the planet where, it, you know, it's kind of one season, like areas along the equator, plants go through cycles of growth and rest and sometimes death or like a, you know, hibernation period before they gather energy and come back to bloom or to grow again. But within this, you know, kind of um, capitalistic patriarchal culture that we're in, you know, it it thrives on um, its productivity valued, it's competition driven. And there's this underlying assumption that we as humans need to be blooming all the time. We need to be production machines. We need to be creating all the time. And one way that I see this play out socially is that we're we're expected to have the same levels of enthusiasm or engagement with the outside world for like all of the seasons all of the time and that's just not natural like for those of you who are you know for for those for those of us who are extroverted you know we might gain energy by being around people and that's and that's great and um, that doesn't mean that as the seasons change, you're not going to feel a natural tendency to want to do things a little bit differently, right? So I just want to invite you this season, and in any season, really, if, if um, it, to start to notice the difference between the, the expectations that you are holding yourself to or that you are feeling from the culture and, and from society around you and what is really resonating with inside you or, or what you're being called to do. So for example, now I'm being, I'm really being called to retreat, to go inward, to tend to my inner landscape. There has been a, I had a very, very busy summer of creating and kind of a busy year of creating new things. So many new things were created this year. Uh, and I can feel myself needing to go into what feels to me like an intense period of, of hibernation. And um, again, I have to balance kind of what I can do socially and culturally um, and what I really need. So that's just a bit about what's going on personally. For me, if you follow me on social media, you'll see that I'm, I'm really not there. <laughs> I've really retreated. Um, and there's been no proclamations about fasting on social media or anything like that. I just don't feel the need to engage. And I've been battling a little bit of 
Well, yeah, I've been battling some depression and I've been pulling in my resources around that and tending to that um, in the ways that feel appropriate for me. And for me, one of the ways that that plays out um, within both my personal life and also within my work is that I, I did create a lot this year and some of those creations felt really, really easy and some of those creations have felt it, it have felt really difficult to sustain. And something that's, uh, it's been, um, sometimes what happens to me when I get in the process of creation, like creating so many things, is that I get kind of caught up in the excitement of creating. I've talked about this before. And have a more difficult time discerning what's uh, going to be sustainable over the long term. So that's part of what I'm doing this fall is kind of going inward and looking for the difference between which of my projects, my lifestyle habits and choices feel like kind of jumping in the flow, right? You know, I know that it's work that's mine when it feels kind of like jumping in a flow, right? And there's not quite as much effort. Sure, there might be work. I might need to steer, you know, myself along the river, but um, there's not so much effort. So having discernment between that and where it feels like I'm pushing boulders up hills. Um, And so that's going to be a process that I imagine is going to continue through the end of the year, um, getting some clarity as I move into the new year. So, and I just share that with you because you might from time to time feel like you're coming up against a wall or feel like um, something needs to change. And so I'm just kind of sharing part of my process um, so that if it resonates with you, you know, you're not alone. In some more business news, um, within the Refuge, the membership group, the Refuge for Sacred Rebellion, we're currently, we've currently just started teaching the Sensitive Self-Defense course. This is a course that teaches basic spiritual hygiene, energy hygiene, how, you know, think of it like brushing your teeth for your your spirit body. Um, We started this last week, um, and our second class will be tomorrow, that's Tuesday, uh, and this is happening for six weeks, and it just is a lo- goes along with your monthly membership fee. It's not too late to join, all right? So if you're listening to this you know, on Monday and you're like, oh my gosh, I really, really want to take that course, it is not too late to join. We would really love to have you. Um, the more, the merrier, and I really believe that the more people that learn these um, energetic hygiene techniques, especially us empaths and highly sensitive people. Um, we need to learn these tools so that we can show up in the world, right? So that we can um, be around and relating to others. Um, and in fact, this is something that today Shanda and I talk about in a private conversation that will be shared with my patrons. So if you're a patron on patreon.com uh, at the $2 level or more, you'll receive receive this um, behind the scenes conversation with Shanda and I. We just had so much to talk about. We couldn't put it all in the interview, but we, you know, really talk about the need for empaths and highly sensitive people to 
build capacity and so that we can share our magic in the world because we have so much fucking magic and we need to be able to share it. So so this course that I teach, Sensitive Self-Defense, we, I teach it twice a year and, and this time my, my uh, assistant teacher, Heidi Frank Palmer, is teaching the course and I'm there as well to, um, you know, really help kind of the next level of HSPs and, and empaths feel resilient in this world. So we'd really love for you to join us. Other business news, I have opened up more slots for my private one-on-one clients. So if you are facing this fall or this season, wherever you are in the world, and you're kind of thinking, gosh, I could really use some support. I'm not sure how to find my own answers. Um, I would really love to work with you. I've been thinking a lot about so something that is difficult in my position is how to define and talk about my work. And a, a metaphor that keeps coming to me recently is of a midwife. And there's something about the term spiritual midwifery that seems appropriate because something that I've um, that 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 I've realized I do, and this is mostly from talking to um, my clients, is I help people rebirth themselves. I help. I help you, highly sensitive person, become the person you are meant to be instead of the person you turned into because of, of what you thought you should be doing. So if you're interested in getting to know yourself deeper and would like a friendly guide for that, I have more spots available um, in person and online as well. Thank you so much to all of my Patreon supporters. If you like this podcast and you'd like to see it continue for another year, you can donate a couple bucks a month at patreon.com slash soul of sensitivity. When you donate, it means a ton to me. It makes me know that you, or it lets me know that you are enjoying this podcast, that you appreciate the work and you'd like to see it continue. If donating a couple dollars isn't in your budget, I totally understand. And leaving a review on iTunes and a rating is incredibly helpful. So I'd appreciate the time that it takes to do that. Thank you. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Shanda to you. Shanda Catrice is a fiercely compassionate truth teller and visionary who uses raw authenticity to guide women through inner transformation. She's a certified Reiki Reiki energy healing practitioner, a spiritual intuitive, gifted empath, and shadow guide. Shanda beautifully combines practical science with sacred healing arts from different spiritual traditions, philosophies, and healing modalities that she has studied from around the world to radically shift the lives of her clients. She has over 10 years of experience supporting women in their soul work and has facilitated workshops, healing circles, guided meditations, and coaching retreats that have helped women create deeper connections to themselves, to their purpose, and to love. I think what I'd like to start with, Mm -hmm. you have a pretty powerful story around following your intuition (laughs) and staying alive. I would love (laughs) to to tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, So let me see. Let me give you the condensed version. Yeah. But about uh, two years ago, a little bit, maybe a little bit over two years, 
ago, I was at work at the time. This is before I was full-time entrepreneur. And I just felt sick. Like I, I knew I had gallstones. That was something I already knew. And I was aware that sometimes I would have a gallbladder attack. But I was feeling sick and not really a gallbladder attack. And all I had that morning was like, a strawberry smoothie. So I was thinking, okay, you didn't eat pizza. You didn't, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you should be okay. But something just said, you need to go to the emergency room. And for me, I've always been um, one that when I get that type of intuition, I listen. Like when the intuition told me, move, move to California, you know, quit your, quit your government job, move to California. And I'm always reluctant, like, what? Are you serious? So this time it said, go to the emergency room. And I'm thinking, you know, what? okay, I'll go because I feel sick, but I don't feel like it's emergency room level sick. So I go to, to the emergency room and I tell the doctor I have the gallstones, I'm feeling sick. They do blood tests, sonogram, everything, send me home. Doctor says, you know, go see your doctor on Monday because it was Friday. So I get home, just go about my day. Um, the next morning I wake up and my sister's like, um, I think you should call your doctor. The doctor you saw yesterday left me three voice messages. And so I look at my phone and I see I have numerous voice messages as well. So I listen to them. And it's like, oh yeah, this is doctor, you know, so-and-so. Could you give me a call back as soon as possible? So I call him back and, you know, one, I feel like this, this is disparity medicine, but he says, oh yeah, I, you know, I want to apologize. I'm just reviewing your, your blood work this morning. <laughs> like what? But um, he said, could you come back into the emergency room? And I was like, okay, you know, he's like, I just want to, you know, when you get here, just um, tell them my name and they'll take you back. And, and, we, and I'm thinking we are just going to talk or whatever. So I'm taking my time. And he's like, well, he actually said that before, like, okay, um, are you going to come now? Are you coming now? And I'm thinking, uh, okay, I guess I can come now. So I even, even didn't come back. I went to, to Whole Foods. I got like a soup or juice. I um, got a magazine, like, who? I'm not going to be here all day, you know, <laughs> with nothing. This time. Uh -huh, sure. So yeah. I get there and then I say, okay, you know, Dr. So-and-so said to let you know I was here, you know, and he, they immediately take me back to the OR and they say, uh, you're, you're going to have emergency gallbladder surgery. And they told me that my liver enzymes were really high um, and that my bile duct was blocked so if anyone doesn't know you know medicine like that like i surely didn't but blocked bile duct is death basically <laughs> you know yeah, um yeah and so i go into the surgery that normally takes about one or two hours and then you're you know you're done i'm in surgery basically the entire day um and on top of that i am told i have to have another another surgery 24 hours later so basically two surgeries within 24 hours of each other. I come, I get out of the, um, you know, the, the um, I get back into my room and um, my surgical team is standing around me and everyone is looking at me like they, they've seen a ghost. My, the head surgeon who performed my surgery, who led that, she said, you should not be alive. Wow. And she was just like, I really don't know why you are alive. She said that um, I was basically septic. Like I was basically at the door of being septic, which again, if you don't know um, what that means, it's the poisoning of the blood. And basically at that point, 
there's not much they can do for you because your your the infection has gotten into your bloodstream. And and this is so funny that you know, not funny, but like haha funny, but um, you know, weird funny. Right. <laughs> yeah, weird funny. Yeah. But strangely, my father actually died from sepsis. Huh. And and I just had that realization just now. Um he wow. had pneumonia and didn't know it. And it, he actually became septic and he died from sepsis. So that just gave me chills. So yeah, you know, and so she said, I, you know, I really don't know how you're alive. And one, I don't know how you were walking around. Like, like you were just walking around out in life. This, hanging out at Whole Foods. You hanging know? out at Whole Foods. You know, remember, you know, I, I didn't really feel anything different. Right. So um, that close to death and, she said, well, basically this, the infection has spread through the entire gallbladder and it was just like my body had become so heavily infected and the, the entire surgery was them removing the infection. And then the subsequent surgery was them going into my body and removing all of the gallstones that had spread throughout my body. And that was kind of crazy. So she said they injected a dye so they could see where they were and they took a mechanism and they just went around and just scrubbed my body clean and retrieved all of the stones as much as they could. Wow. And that was crazy. So um, she let me know they cut me, you know, <laughs> you know, from the rooter to the tutor. Like they cut me from, <laughs> they cut me from like from the, from the navel all the way up to the like top of the abdomen. So um, this entire surgery took me end to end an entire year to heal. So I was on disability. And that time, I say that I was emotionally bankrupt, financially bankrupt, and physically bankrupt because I had lost my job. I really lost my friends because during this time and the whole year, no one showed up. Like the only person that showed up really was my sister. And mm -hmm. every friend I've had over the 20 years were just, they were just absent. Like no one was there. My mother didn't come see me, which is a, a you know a deep mother wound that already was pre-existing so I didn't really expect her to come see me but so here I am you know <laughs> and this is one I'm facing my biggest fear on, in the whole wide world is being alone and my sister was only home with me for a month and then she had to go she got a new job I had to go back to work so <clears throat> during this time I was completely alone and I had to depend on uber drivers <laughs> you know strangers to carry things for me um, I would be crying to Uber drivers and let them know that I, you know, I was very sick and could they drive me directly to the door? Could they help bring my things in? You know, and I met the most wonderful people. Like these strangers were like the most wonderful people. And during this time, I said, wow, like you're 40 years old and this is the culmination of your life at the, the, de the, the door of death. You mean nothing like what you really felt about yourself that you had no value in the world is true because you're basically dead and no one that you know is here and you have nothing now like you have you don't even have your your physical capabilities you don't have money you know and I just called down I asked I asked God universe source like why you have to show me why this happened like how could this happen to me when I've given so much over my entire life like things have happened to my friends and I flew across the country to be with them for weeks 
Like I've held hands, uh, you know, I've cried with people. I've stayed up to the wee hours of night coming up with solutions. Like, you know, and no one's here. Like no flowers, no anything, no calls, no gift cards to say here help with the groceries i know you don't have a job anymore you know like nothing and um i got this email from my cousin and it was um, about the ace study the adverse childhood experiences that was done with the kaiser permanente and cdc and it was talking about how people around the age of 40 start developing autoimmune disorders um different ailments and diseases based upon trauma that happened early in their childhood. And so me, I'm, I am in my former life <laughs> before um, I became an entrepreneur, I was a researcher for the government. So this is like my passion. So I just got busy and I had all this free time since I was at home now. I couldn't really get up out of bed. <laughs> you know, I was just confined, confined to my bed. So I just started researching. I researched ACE. And from AIDS, I found, um, you know, attachment theory. And then I just started to look at everything in my life and take inventory of myself. And what I saw was, aha, <laughs> you have picked these people. Subconsciously, you picked people that mirrored your parents. They mirrored the relationship that you had with your parents in a more um, diluted way they were they were my mother all of them huh. so they didn't really possess the capacity to give me the things i needed and what i found you know what i feel like the universe showed me was and this came out of so the, you know, I'll, I'll kind of take a little tangent but from this whole experience um as i started working on myself and healing myself um i actually had um you know sort of a nervous breakdown I had this amazing, this major anxiety attack about six months into healing. And my doctor told me it was from PTSD from the surgery because it was so traumatic. And so then all of these memories of having anxiety as a child came up and mm -hmm. I was like, oh my, like this, this has always been here and it's all just now come to a head and erupting. So I'm just like now, you know, I'm in therapy, I'm, I'm getting into all this stuff. So then the way serendipity would have it, I find myself um, doing a plant medicine journey. And, nice. <laughs> you know, in this journey, it was revealed to me that, so now you must, you saw what happened outside of you. Now you must own your part in it too. So there was a part that was my experience, things that happened to me. Then there was a part where I, I say, I took the baton and kept it going, where it showed me that, I didn't create boundaries in my life with anyone. Um, I wasn't emotionally authentic or honest. So I never told, like I would tell anyone my opinions, you know, like in a blink of an eye, but I would <laughs> never tell anyone how I felt. So I never told anyone my true feelings. I never told them what I needed from them. I never set boundaries. And then that medicine told me, and now you're going to do it. And now you're going to go and you're going to tell all your friends how they hurt you, what you expected to happen, what you need to happen going forward, if they would like to continue to be your friend. And this was hard. This actually took another entire year because I had never spoke up for myself in my life because that was a learned behavior because my mother had been very volatile and transactional in her love. 
and conditional. So I learned to just get with the program and don't make a fuss or people will leave you. And so I was always afraid with my friends that if I really told them what I really felt or what I really needed, or if I really set boundaries or requested anything from them, they would leave. And so, you know, and honestly, to be truthful, you know, I like to be real in everything I do. 80% of those friends did leave. So when I had these conversations with them, a lot of them did say, you know, bye, later, have no time for this. Um, a, a couple friends stayed. One of my closest friends, she said, I was telling her about my research with attachment theory and everything. And, and this, you know, it really touched me because she said, do you think that, you know, like, do I have an insecure attachment? And I said, yeah, you do, because we're friends and you do. And, and she actually started to work on herself. And she said, you know what? I'm willing to work on this relationship with you. And I am, and we've been working on it ever since then. And it's been getting better. You know, there's, there, you know, I would say she has a handicap and I have a handicap. I'm, I will feel like I'm more, um, more along the recovery than she is because I'm actively doing that. And I know what it is, but it's healing. This relationship is healing. And I set those hard, firm boundaries now with what I want. And I feel like in this time, um, another thing I had to dimension taught me and this work taught me is that I also was so dissociated from my feelings and my self and my core that I had become so disconnected to my own body that I didn't even know it was going to die. That's so fascinating. And that was something that was coming to me when you were talking about <clears throat> having to tell your friends your, or you weren't able to tell your friends your feelings. And that was a thought that came was like, well, did you even know no, that? I, and, and that's the honest part about it is that I really didn't know my feelings. And even right now, this is, you know, two years later, even right now, and I am a coach right now, I have to usually stop. I have to give myself a day to sit in my feelings because they don't come to me easily. Yeah. So I usually give myself space and I don't make a decision until I clearly know what my feelings are on something. Yeah, this is so important. And I find um, similar things in, in my clients who have had trauma in their background, who have had um, uh, difficulty in their childhood, and some who are highly sensitive, maybe Usually, though, those of us who are highly sensitive have had those things because trauma can feel, trauma can be small things, right? It can be small or big or exactly. a combination of a lot of things. And, and I, I want to talk about that in just a second. But the mm -hmm. thing that I wanted to, to say there was that um, it can take a lot for us to understand what we're feeling. And we often need that time away and more time in transitioning into ourselves, you know, and, and being able to figure that out so that then we can, you know, share that or move that yeah. forward. And, and also there's a tool that I use. So in this, and I'll share it, but there's a tool that I, in my research, in my journey, when I was um, healing myself, is called the feelings wheel <laughs> and uh, yeah. therapists and psychologists use it and it actually helped me so much that it sounds so like you know like um sophomoric or something but but it really is helpful it is you look at this wheel and you pinpoint your emotions and it takes you down levels and layers so you go to first level and you, then you go to second level then you go to third level so then by the time you get to third level you actually truly know what the real feeling is. That's so important. I mean, first of all, 
unless we have like the most stellar home, which like none of us usually do, we don't mm -hmm. learn that. And then second of all, even if we did, we probably wouldn't learn that, right? We don't learn emotions. So I think that's beautiful. I'll try to put a link to that um, in the show. Yeah. And you know, in the way that um, adverse experiences go, so, so it's, it's, I like to separate them. Like everyone experience adversity, everyone experience, you know, every, most homes are dysfunctional, but this is the, the differentiation to that is, a lot of homes, every home isn't traumatic. Every home isn't chaotic and unhealthy. So right. when you experience a traumatic home, a traumatic childhood, or, you know, there are three main traumas, developmental traumas is in, in the home, you know, with the primary caregivers, in your environment, or, and, and when I say environment, that means that if you are, you know, a person of color, or you are uh, gay or lesbian, and you are in uh, environment, church, school, um, community that is not safe, does not, that yeah. you don't feel safe, then that creates a trauma. So you can have a nice childhood, but if your overall environment, and then you have a qualifying event, which is a divorce, which is um, a death or a chronically ill parent. Uh, so any of those things, or you, you know, you, your parents could have lost their home and you all had to go live in a shelter or anything that creates trauma. And, and as adults, we, since divorce is so prevalent in our society, when our, in our adult mind, when we look at divorce, we don't see it as a traumatic event, but as a child, that doesn't matter how loving you are. If a divorce happens, especially on the, um, I think on the A scale, but definitely on my scale, that it is a traumatic event. It is considered a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. um, and then if there's substance abuse and, you know, a physical abuse in a family, all those things create these trauma wounds. So it's not this dysfunctionality. These are like real trauma wound, deep wounds that affect the psyche and the emotions and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you compare that then to what you're talking about the the a scale or the is, is that the adversity you're talking about is different yeah. from the trauma can you relate the two well well trauma and adverse the adverse is are the same got different it and then this just have a dysfunctional childhood i see i got family. it we're having some it. adversity so yeah in, okay. on the a scale this is interesting in this book i read called childhood disrupted um they did images of the brain and they noticed that there's something that happens to the brain when we experience too much or too many adversities. So somewhere they have like a scale of 10 major adversities or, you know, categories. When you get to a, a four, it's considered chronic. And this is when they start to see that um, you have, you will develop health problems. Mm -hmm. When you get to five, six, they feel, they see that you actually have a shortened lifespan. Hmm. And now when they look at, so adversity is good. Every human, every animal needs adversity. However, they found that the brain that had no adversities in their life was the same brain of someone who had like an eight on the A scale. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So we need some adversity in order to kind of overwhelm, yeah. but not overwhelm. That's fascinating. That Some adversity, sense. but not the yeah. overwhelming. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We don't like to be overwhelmed. Okay. Well, I, I awesome. I want to kind of shift a little bit into your work in attachment theory. Mm -hmm. I think this is so important for all of us, but I see a lot of um, difficulty in relationships for 
highly sensitive people. And I think that there's a lot of answers to be found in attachment theory, and this is not where my work is. So for, for those of us listening who don't know what attachment theory is, can you kind of give us the basics? Yes. <laughs> so for me, I call it love style. Um, so this is to make it a little bit more easier on the mind and ear. Got it. I <laughs> but, love it. Um, so you have these different relationship styles and or love styles have you. And they are what how you experienced love as a child. So depending on what your experience was as a child with your bond to your primary caregiver, whether you felt secure or insecure, safe or unsafe, this is, this is subconsciously. So it's not, oh yeah, I felt safe. Oh, I had a good childhood. So it's not about that. It's subconsciously, if your, your core primary needs were met as a child, then you would develop either into an insecure style or, or a secure style. So there are four main styles and I'm going to give you my, um, <laughs> my version of them instead of the um, actual technical versions. That's great. <laughs> so you have a love confident style, which is that secure style. This is someone who grew up in a secure home. They felt loved, they felt safe. And what that means is that what happened is when they needed to be loved, they were loved. When they needed to be independent, they were independent. They were given independence. And when they, need, they needed to be come back and be cared for, they were cared for. So 50% of our society is secure. 50% of our society is insecure. So okay. it's good to understand these styles, whether you're secure or insecure, because if 50%, you know, that means if you are the secure one, you know, it's a great chance your partner or your friends and mates could be insecure. So then you have the three other ones. One is a love pursuer, one is a love, love distancer, and one is love fearful. And so what happens is, the main two that attract to each other, which cause this chaotic, you know, cosmic dysfunction is the love pursuer and love distancer. And how that looks is like this. If you, and all of them come from a core abandonment wound, but the wound looks differently. So I'll, I'll start with the avoidant because there are more avoidance in, than, um, than any, any of the other ones. So mm -hmm. avoidant usually comes from an avoidant is a love distancer. So the avoidant style comes from being in a family where you were made to be a little adult, meaning that maybe um, there was a divorce and the mother then became like a helicopter parent and made you into the mate or made you have more responsibilities than you could take as a child. So usually this love distancer comes from a family where the parent was too needy. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite, the love pursuer comes from a family uh, where the parents or the primary caregivers were emotionally unavailable, meaning that they were neglecting, they were um, not there, they, were, they felt abandoned, like completely abandoned. Mm -hmm. So then the love pursuer is on a, you know, your subconscious mind will always try to resolve the wounds. Mm -hmm. So that's why it will always call to you the very people that would continue the hurt that wants to resolve. And then there's another um, paradox to that is that as human beings and animals, we do what we know because that is, that's how we survive in the wild. That's yeah. how we survive evolution. Mm -hmm. So then we're going to pick the people that we know subconsciously because we know it. We're not going to pick that secure style because we don't know that style. Mm 
we know what what will happen with the insecure styles so then when the pursuer is on this ever like always like they they usually live in a fantasy world they usually codependent they are the people who go really fast in relationships who always every time they meet someone new they're their soulmate um and and within two months they're living together Uh, you know (laughs) that usually is a love pursuer you could Mm -hmm. spot them all just easily Mm -hmm. they are so in love with love yes and the love distancer is one that always feels like is is super critical of everyone no one ever measures up they're always the catch um you know they always withdraw when they're overwhelmed they withdraw and then they also will um kind of give people little bitty crumbs of love and they and they and then when you pursue them then they run away got it this is fascinating keep going keep going so, and then the final style style is only about three per, three to five percent of society which is love fearful and this is people who have heavy social anxiety mm. relationships and groups and people make them have such social anxiety because these people usually were physically or sexually abused and it's a deep 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 wound and so how this plays out that it plays out in every relationship that you have it, it plays out in your friendships. It plays out in your romantic relationships. It plays out in your coworkers, your clients. Um, you know, when I first started my business, all of my clients were avoidance because I'm a love pursuer. Every client I had was avoided. When I would do their work, I could never find them. I could never, like they would never, <laughs> they would never answer my emails. They were never, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is crazy. Then I'm doing your work. You're not answering my emails. And I had to chase them. See, like the, the, this is her needs to be chased. And so the pursuer is the only person that could be with them because they're the only person who always chase and they will chase love and they will continue to chase. And when someone pulls away, they get even, they get and that, this style in the te- technical term is called anxious. Yeah. So this style is actually love addicted. It's addicted to love. It's a, it is addicted to the um, intermittent response. And, and that's kind of because they, they didn't ever really receive that, right? So they're trying to, to find that. Is that what I'm understanding? Well, they're, they're, it's what they were taught. Like usually in my home, love was transactional. Exactly. So, so they was, have to work for it. Well, it's, it's a thing. I think it's called, it's called intermittent, inter, intermittent reward. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. they did the study with rats and they realized that, that if, if they had a treat and they never gave the rat a treat ever, that rat would get, it would just get bored with the, with the um, treat giver and just move on and not care. But if they even gave the rat a treat even one time, it is addiction. So it's not, it's not mm-hmm. conscious. It's an addiction. So, sure. so when you get the reward one time, you get a spike and you get addicted to the spike and then you just keep the behavior and it doesn't even matter. The reward never comes again. You will keep on looking like, okay, is it, is it coming? Is it coming? So in this love addiction, the love was doled out to you so sparingly mm-hmm. that you got it when you could. Got it. And where you could. Mm-hmm. So then you created this response in you that if I perform this way, I'll get it. If I perform this way. So usually that's why, and then you get more anxious and when you don't get it, you do more. And so mm-hmm. these people usually are overgivers. Mm-hmm. They're overgivers they usually are very um, highly, you know, skilled empaths mm-hmm. because they have to 
understand every mood you have, every need. They have to anticipate your moods and needs so they could they could be safe. They know that when you're about to pull away, when you're what makes you pull away. So then when I know what makes you pull away, I don't do it. Exactly. You see in my relationship with my friends, you see how now how my style was acting in that. Yeah. How I didn't ever tell them what was wrong because I want to kind of keep the love. Yeah. So that just kind of performed. I just, I so see this in myself. I'm like, oh, that's my style. I took your quiz, which is fantastic. And Uh we'll link to that. Everyone should do it. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm a pursuer. And through the therapy work that I've done, I knew that. I knew I had that anxious style. Mm -hmm. And it was, I really loved your quiz because like you said, it put it in language that I was like, oh, it's very self-explanatory. It explains many of my patterns in a way that I can see it. And it's not just like the, you know, psychology speak but yeah and, I, and that's why i changed it to these words because so you can understand it and then also understanding this so the first thing people know is how do i change my style i gotta get, <laughs> i gotta get out of style so this is what i tell people so this is the womp 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 so i'm gonna give you the womp womp, womp. yeah <laughs> <laughs> most likely you can't change your style right oh you know but this is this is the beauty of it so in the in the, i'm gonna give you some stats here you know these are the stats whether we believe them or not so only one in four people will ever change their style ever anyway. And usually that takes up to like at least four years. So, so just think about this. If only one in four people change their styles, it takes four years. That means the person is probably that's going to be is the person that is really not just going to see a therapist, but going to see an attachment theory therapist. Yeah. Like, cause like that means someone's doing so much deep, deep work in attachment theory that they're changing their style. Yeah. And, but, and you also can have your style changed if you get with someone who's secure and you have this earned attachment, they call it, you know, mm-hmm. secure attachment, where over time, if you're with someone secure, you will learn and heal and you mm-hmm. will learn how to be more healthy in your relationships and you will, your nervous system will calm down more and you will trust love more. Mm-hmm. But, so what I teach is what more of a healing and a balancing and a recovering of the style. So mm-hmm. that means that I can be this style my entire life if I become aware of my triggers, aware of how, what I do that's unhealthy, mm-hmm. aware of what is effective communication, aware of what's healthy relationships, what healthy communication looks like. Identify, really understand what, who avoidance are, love distancers, really getting to know in and out the signs of a love distancer so that when I date, when I make friends, when I go to a job, when I get a client, I'm out of there when I see it. So this is the other want, want, want when I teach all my clients and my students is that if you are one of these styles, the moment you notice that someone else is the other style, that relationship is done. Mm. So in your new relationships, it's done. Because and it pulls you back into the old pattern. It will trigger you and you won't be able to control it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way it can bear, it can kind of work is if both people are very knowledgeable and educated on attachment theory, they're both in therapy and they're both working on it. But I say, if you're single or you're new for new friends, why would you choose something that's going to be so arduous and just choose someone secure, like just mm-hmm. choose secure friends and secure mates, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're already in a relationship or already have friends, like I had my friend, I don't want to give up a 20 year plus relationship because now I found out about attachment theory. It's mm-hmm. easy, you know. <laughs> um, right. 
but we we both decide to work on it but both people have to work and both people have to become very aware and educated about their triggers and what the unhealthy behaviors are and what effective communication looks like and i have everyone create commandments of themselves and commandments of their relationships so when you create your own 10 commandments people must follow them or they're out and this means employers or employees friends associates and romantic partners it means everyone mm-hmm. and i used to have this um pattern and i realized where i was everywhere is because i realized that all of my former supervisors and bosses were this extreme love distance hairstyle and they were so toxic for me and that job constantly triggered me because this this supervisor was that style mm-hmm. and i triggered them because i was the other style you know and i found out that like i had this one when i really finally hit home was i had this last job before i became an entrepreneur the one i lost when i got sick <laughs> um, <laughs> i got hired for this job and I was hired through a staffing agency and I went through all the interviews, but the main supervisor, she was out of town or she wasn't available. So I never met her. I met all these other people. I never met her. The day I go to work and she shows up, my first day she shows up, I'm like, oh my God, she is the style. She is the distancer. And she's so toxic in her distancing. It just triggered me the whole, the entire time I was there. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is where it gets spiritual and energetic. This is so far reaching that you will unconsciously attract this to you without your conscious knowledge. Like I attracted the situation, never even meeting this woman but showed up and this is who she was. This is a perfect segue. This is what I wanted to talk about next. So you said, okay, want, want, we can't, pr- probably, we're not going to change our style. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. But I, I know that you have a really deep, a really rich intuition and spirituality. So I'm curious then how you frame this in spiritual terms. Like, what does this look like in terms of, I don't know, maybe soul calling? How do our attachment styles actually... Um, I'm curious what your theories are and how they're, they're helping our spirit or guiding our spirit or not. Um, I'm <laughs> curious on your, with your theories on that. Well, I feel like, you know, we all have these things that, that, that happen to us yep. and they are opportunities to cultivate something within us. Mm-hmm. So spiritually, I feel like this is, all of this is my calling. You know, it's not something I have to like, but it's all of it is my calling because in healing of this, I am now doing this work in helping other people heal. Yeah. And I do feel like you are called to become a person in your life. You're not called to have the pain. So mm-hmm. you were called to get in this family to learn something or to become someone. Now the pain part was never the bargain that the universe had. It's just that if people have free will, everyone's not doing their healing work. So we have to do our healing work. And, and what this work did for me is allow me to just sink into my authentic self. Hmm. So I finally found out who I really was and, you know, my authentic self. And I found out how to truly love me hmm. and get to know me and develop an intimate relationship with me and myself. I think it's such a beautiful thing because 
I think I, I, I really agree with you and that like, you know, bad shit happens, just kind of how, how the world yeah, is, yeah. bad shit happens. And then we choose how we respond. Yes. So what I see with you is like, oh, you, you chose like, okay, I'm going to respond in a way that brings me closer to my truth. And whether or not that was the intention at the out, at the onset, it sounds like that's what happened. And that's what happens. And, and, and I love um, one of my virtual teachers, I, I call her my virtual teacher, but it's Carolyn Mace. And she says, like, we need to stop asking questions we'll never get the answer to. And the, right? the, the question is, we don't, we'll never know why this happened. We will never know why. Yes we will probably know why when we are no longer a human being, but we will never know why as a human being. So I can't tell anyone why you have experienced this trauma. I don't even know why I experienced it. But the, what, what I do know is you have a choice of the response. You have a choice of who you become. And you can say, hey, this happened in my life. This happened. Complete sentence. This happened. Now, how I live the rest of my life is on me mm -hmm. because at this point now I'm, you know, I'm 40. My parent, I don't even live in the same city with my family anymore. So at this point, no one's really consciously doing anything to me, mm -hmm. but I have these old wounds as baggage that I'm lugging around. So it's about me, whether or not I want to rewrite my story mm -hmm. and I want to rewrite my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really agree with you that that, uh, and I love Carolyn Mice, but the, the why question, it's like, it's, it's not even really relevant. And anyone no. who can tell you why, that's a little, like, that makes my alarm bells go off because it's, it's, that's kind of fundamentalism, you know? It's yeah, like, it's not relevant. And also she said too, she says, okay, so if I did tell you why, was that going to change anything? Exactly. Those, the things still happened. They, they still happen, whether you know the why of them or not. Yeah. It's never going to change that these things happen to you and they're painful yeah. and they're, and they hurt. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, what, out of that, what was born of coming from a mother that wasn't nurturing is that I have become the most nurturing person that I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Shanda, can you tell us where people can find your work? Yes, of course. You can find me in my internet home at www.shandacatrice.com. Dot com. Great. So I'll make sure to put a link to that. And then I always like to finish, Shanda, with what's the one thing you would like our listeners to know? Oh, the one thing I would like listeners to know, I feel like right now I've been on this whole now, now, now kick and instantaneous action. There is no time to wait. The moment you feel resonance, the moment you feel inspiration, the moment you feel aha, the moment you feel your heart expand, whether that's through a teacher, through poetry, through words, through a product, through an idea, you are meant to act at that very exact moment. And the sooner you can collapse the time between you receiving your answers and acting, the sooner your life will change. I love that. Thank you so much for having this conversation. It's been really inspiring for me. Thank you. Me too. Thanks again for listening to The Soul of Sensitivity. Show notes and links from today's episode can be found at www.sensitivityuncensored.com. If you would like to read more about high sensitivity or intuition, sign up for my mailing list, 
book an intuitive reading with me, or learn more about my membership group, The Refuge for Sacred Rebellion, please visit my website. Again, it's www.sensitivityuncensored.com.